Welcome to series four of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto, a B Corp certified company that loves food, data, people, technology, and the planet. We are currently delivering millions of meals every single week, and our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner. Our purpose is to have positive impact on people and the planet. And each week here on Bold Flavors, I'll be talking to top company founders, CEOs and business leaders about their journey so far, what makes them tick and how they achieve what they're achieving. I am talking to Tessa today, the founder of Olio. She has grown the team to 60 people, raised over $40 million from VCs, and is changing the way we consume food. What I love the most about her is her huge passion for climate change and Olio's positive purpose. Gusto and Olio are so similar in that way, as we both firmly believe scale equals more positive impact on people and the planet. Today, Tessa and I will talk about her journey as a founder, what she had to unlearn from her corporate career, and how she thinks about culture, values, team, and talent. Tessa, it's so great to speak to you today. Thank you for taking the time. And I want to start with purpose, mission, tech for good. Like, tell me all about the idea. What are you working on? Yeah, so Olio marries all of those things together, sort of purpose, business, tech for good. Um, and we do so in an app which exists to tackle the enormous problem of food waste that exists in our homes and local communities. And we do that by connecting people with their neighbours so they can give away rather than throw away their spare food and other household items. And we've also recently launched the ability for our community to lend and borrow everyday household items as well. So really we're about... Uh, reinventing how we consume and really encouraging people, first and foremost, to consume, utilizing resources that already exist in their local community rather than buying stuff brand new. Love it. And I mean, like, so, so similar to what we're trying to achieve. We're literally trying to make the planet better off by building products that are amazing for people. Just a very, I guess, different business model and philosophy, but, but the yeah. shared purpose around food waste is really remarkable. And so, how many people are on the platform now? So we've had just over 5 million people wow. join Olio. Wow. And they have together successfully given away over 40 million portions of food and also 3 million other household items. And that has had an environmental impact equivalent to removing over 120 million car miles from the road and we've also saved over six billion liters of water so wow. really really high impact and what's most exciting about all of that is that we're currently doing 0.001 percent of our full potential and we've already had that impact so as you start to imagine how we can kind of scale this up we have really the potential to transform the fate of humanity in the face of the climate crisis by solving solving this problem of sort of food waste and also overconsumption more broadly. And just just to make it like really intuitive for anyone listening, yep. like you know, I'm 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 cooking right now. How uh, does it work? <laughs> how do I? Yeah, just just to like be really kind of obvious yeah. about it. No, of course. So you uh, might have some food or another household item that you don't want. And so to give it away, you snap a photo and add it to the Olio app. 
Neighbours living nearby get an alert, letting them know that something new has been added near them. They can then browse through the listings, request what they want and pop round and pick it up. And there's two things that you will not notice just by looking at the Olio app. The first is just how strong the demand is. So half of all the food listings added to the app are requested within 20 to 30 minutes. Wow. And half of all the non-food listings are requested within four to five hours. So there is no shortage of demand for free stuff. (laughs) Um, So that's the first thing that isn't necessarily apparent just through looking at the app. The second thing that isn't necessarily apparent just through looking at the app is the fact that whilst we are obviously an app, the beating heart of Olio is in fact the community connection that takes Mm -hmm. place in real life on the doorstep. So we recently ran a survey and over 40% of our community say that they have felt less lonely since joining Olio and over 40% say they've also made friends through Olio. So that sort of community piece and that intersection of technology and Mm. community in real life is incredibly powerful. And obviously, if you have everyone on the street using Olio, I mean, it's amazing from a network effect perspective. But how, I guess, if you only have one person, I mean, word Mm -hmm. of mouth must be the biggest kind of engine. But like, how how do you kind of spread the word? How do you create the 5 million users? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Word of mouth has been the largest engine of growth for us. So between 60 and 70% of our new signups tell us that they joined earlier as a result of, of word of mouth. To that point about sort of how do we get started when there aren't that many people in a particular geography, what we have found is that sort of thankfully our early adopters are sort of wildly irrational, i.e. they are prepared mm-hmm. to travel further distances than perhaps a mainstream person would in order to participate and be part of our community and pick up stuff for free. But as more and more people come onto the platform, the density increases, the Mm. distance that people are traveling decreases and decreases and decreases and decreases. And also the pickup arrange rate increases because it might not make sense to walk for 10 minutes to pick up two lemons, but it absolutely does make sense to prop across the road and pick them up. And so that's kind of the kind of early adopters have really helped to sort of kickstart that sharing flywheel Mm -hmm. and make it work. In terms of how we have grown, really, uh, word of mouth has been absolutely critical. So we have an ambassador program and over 50,000 people have reached out to offer to volunteer to join our ambassador program to help spread the word about Olio. And so we put them onto Pathway, which entails them either sharing content that we provide them with and kind of taking actions to spread the word about Olio online and within their online sort of social communities, and or they can download or we can mail to them physical marketing materials. So these are posters, letters, flyers, and essentially we're empowering people to do hyper-local guerrilla marketing on our behalf in their local communities because people realize that if they want to be able to use Olio, they've got to get their neighbours using Olio. Yeah, for sure, um, yeah. and, and so they've, they've got a kind of real vested interest in helping us to grow within their local community. Hugely, love that. And are you only in the UK right now? Or? So the UK is our home market, but we have actually had items successfully shared. So not just added to the app, but you know, <laughs> added to the app, requested and picked up in 62 countries so far. And that has been very much thanks to that organic kind of ambassador model of growth. Our most active international markets are 
Singapore, and then also a couple of countries in Latin America. So Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, and Chile in particular. At the moment, the UK is about 80% of all sharing that takes place on the app uh, each week, but 20% and, and growing fast is taking place outside of the UK. And before we talk about you a bit more in detail, I'm just really curious now about kind of the business model of Olio. Mm -hmm. It's not a charity. It's a pro no. for-profit business. How does it actually work? Yeah, absolutely. So we are a resolutely for-profit business and we get quite frustrated actually about this sort of dichotomy that we seem to be fixated with at the moment, which is that if you're doing good, you're probably a charity, but you won't be scaling. Um, <laughs> and if you're scaling fast, uh, then you're probably a business and uh, having lots of horrible negative externalities on sort of people and planet. Uh, we believe firmly that the new business paradigm will be profit with a purpose. So we are absolutely a business. We generate revenues through something called our Food Waste Heroes program. So we have over 40,000 trained volunteers who are members of our community who we invite to join the program and we train them online and we match them with their local business to provide that local business with a service which enables them to have zero food waste locations. So uh, how it works is that you become a trained volunteer, food waste hero we call them, and they can then claim a collection slot, which might be your local Tesco, for example, oh, at wow. 8 p.m. Okay. on a Tuesday evening. You'll pop out of your house across the road. You'll go pick up all of that Tesco's unsold food. You'll take it home, add it to the app. Within minutes, your neighbors are requesting it. And minutes later, they're popping around and picking it up. And that takes that food from having been considered a waste stream in the store to instead, on average, within an hour, uh, being fully redistributed into multiple homes in the local community. And businesses are paying us for that service because wow. at the moment they're paying a waste contractor mm -hmm. to take that food off to landfill or anaerobic digestion or perhaps livestock feed. And instead, they're now paying us to ensure that that food is eaten by multiple households in the local community. And businesses are doing this for multiple reasons. So first of all, their customers are calling out on social media and just saying, throwing away perfectly good food in this day and age is completely unacceptable. And people know there are solutions such as Olio out there. Their employees are filling out employee satisfaction surveys saying they're extremely dissatisfied being paid to throw away perfectly good food every day. And then finally, and thankfully, the race to net zero is now fully on and businesses recognize that they are not going to get to net zero or, or fulfill their sustainability targets whilst they continue to throw away food in this way. So reaching zero food waste locations is an ambition for many, many businesses now. And Olio's real-time hyper-local redistribution model is a very powerful way of enabling them to get to zero food waste. Totally. I super, super um, interesting business model. Really loving it, like the creativity behind it. And I love the point you made about the false dichotomy, the paradigm, you know, shifting towards businesses with a purpose. I mean, every single time we sell a Gusto box, 23% of CO2 emissions are taken out of the system versus mm -hmm. the equivalent supermarket shop. And obviously we want to push it to 50, 60, 70, but yeah. that by itself means every single time you eat Gusto, seven kilos of CO2 emissions are taken out of the system already. And so, as you said, the faster we scale, the more positive impact we have on people yeah. and the planet. And it's just really, really amazing to, to kind of yeah, combine yeah, it. 
I mean, that, that's absolutely that's amazing, that sort of data and that model that you've, you've just shared. And I'm, I'm sure you experience the frustration that I do because I'm often asked at events, you know, how do you reconcile profit with purpose and aren't they inherently in conflict? And to me, this feels like this sort of conversation that was being had in the sort of 80s and 90s about, you know, well, how do you sort of trade off between treating your employees well and having a successful, profitable business. You know, we, we've sort of, we've moved on from that conversation. Are you for or against globalization? Yeah, I remember yeah. those conversations. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we have realized that in order to have a, a profitable, fast growth business, you need happy, motivated, engaged, productive employees. And similarly, I absolutely believe that the most successful businesses in the future will be those that marry profit with purpose. And indeed, I believe that in the not too distant future, businesses that do not have purpose at their core will lose the license to exist. For, for sure, for sure. I mean, that, that trend is accelerating and the world is getting better. It's amazing. Yeah. And so if you, or just give me, give me a couple of like stats. You talked about 40,000 volunteers, 5 million people have downloaded the app over, over their lifetime. Mm -hmm. Like how many people are working full-time at Olio? Can you share revenue numbers or how much money yeah. you've raised or like any indication, I guess, how big the company is? Yeah. So I can share some of those. Uh, in terms of the size of the team, there was sort of a hardy core of nine of us for, for many years. And then we started to grow really quite rapidly uh, through last year. So we doubled our headcount last year from sort of 30 to roughly 60 people. And then we will be doubling our headcount again this year. And that is really in reflection of two things. One, there's just been a seismic shift in uh, the mindset of both people and also businesses, and both are going towards local community and sustainable living, which is squarely mm. where Olio is based. And then the second thing that has been game-changing for us is that we raised a $43 million dollar Series B round of financing last year. Congratulations. So that, thank That's you. Amazing. I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't even congratulate you. I should congratulate the funds, but it's, you know, it's, it's a great outcome. <laughs> no, it, it's been nothing short of game changing for us. Uh, Sasha, my co-founder and I ran the business in an exceptionally lean way for many, many years. And this is just like night and day for us. We've now been able to bring in for the first time ever a, a sort of C-suite of hires heading up each of our function and just being able to access that level of talent that have been through this journey multiple times mm -hmm. before and then kind of build out the teams underneath them is just incredibly exciting. And the timing is right. The market very much wants what we have to offer, in particular around the Food Waste Heroes program um, right now. So yeah, we're just kind of working really, really hard to scale up to uh, fulfill the very full client pipeline that we've got of businesses that want to get to zero food waste, whether it be supermarkets. You know, so Tesco, for example, is our largest client. We rolled out with them through the last year to their 2,700 stores, but also quick service restaurants, contract caterers, et cetera. There's lots and lots of demand. 
and soon gusto. I mean, it's it's. I would like to think puzzle. so. <laughs> I mean, it's such a puzzle to me. If I get my gusto box and I've got an allergy and I'm still getting a garlic or I've got garlics at home, let's put it on yeah. oleo and get rid of it. Yeah, we, we see we see that use case the whole time actually. Sort of mm. gusto, hello fresh, Riverford, Abel and Cole. For mm. whatever reason, people find themselves they forget to cancel their subscription, or as you say, there's. A particular ingredient or item in there that they don't like, or, or just your patterns that week of, of cooking have, have just changed slightly. You find yourself with too much. So, a really, really simple solution to that is for that food to come onto the Olu app. And what's then great is that your product is introduced to a wider audience as well. Sure. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it works for everybody. And, and, I mean, I'm really curious, like you, you just mentioned kind of casually, you went from nine people, the core to 60 to now 120. So clearly your job is changing massively. Yeah. How, how are you finding the journey? What are you learning about yourself? <laughs> how long have you got? Um, <laughs> this is, we can make this a therapy session if you like. <laughs> no, we'll, I'll, I'll resist that temptation. Um, well, I mean, so this is a very topical issue kind of right now because Sasha and I are just bedding in these sort of eight phenomenal SLT hires who've come in to head up each function. And so we are having to extricate ourselves as quickly as we dare from the weeds of the day-to-day operations mm. and really focus on supporting and empowering them to kind of do what they do best. And I think one of the things that gives us real confidence to enable us to do that is that everybody who we recruit into Olio has to kind of pass two really high bars. So the first one is they have to be mission obsessed. So not just mission aligned, but mission obsessed. And we don't drop that bar for anybody or any role, no matter how challenging it is to recruit. And that immediately creates a sense of alignment and a lack of politics mm. um, and a focus that is invaluable, quite frankly, and also builds that sort of sense of trust in the organization. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is that we hire religiously against our, our values as well. So we have four values. They're inclusive, resourceful, ambitious, and caring. Mm-hmm. And when you have a group of people who are mission obsessed and who live and breathe your values then actually, I mean, although it is challenging for Sasha and I to extricate ourselves, I think it's a lot less painful because we know that we really have got the right people taking our business on this this next stage of the journey. And you're clearly leading with very high intentionality, the way you just described the four values, the mission yeah. obsession. How, you know, did you learn, learn by error? Did you mess it up and you had to fire somebody? <laughs> or did you did you have prior experience? Like, how did you start Well, one of the advantages, so Sasha and I have always felt like very sort of unconventional founders, I guess, first of all, by virtue of the fact that we're a female co-founder business, which immediately puts us into a very small minority. But also we founded Olio slightly later on in our lives. Uh, Both of us had had corporate careers spanning sort of 15 odd years before we set up Olio. And so we'd had lots of exposure to other models and and, and seen kind of what had worked and what had not worked. Mm -hmm. Around the mission obsession piece to us it was always very intuitively clear that Mm -hmm. that is what we should do so it's a very instinctive thing but on an almost daily basis i am stunned at the power Mm. of recruiting for mission obsession in terms of what it does for your ability to attract super high 
caliber talent, but most importantly, to retain it. And our company morale, so we run employee satisfaction surveys uh, and we always have done, even sort of when we were a team of nine, we had that discipline because we believe, (laughs) again, we saw from our corporate lives that some aspects of sort of um, corporate workings are very powerful. That's one of them. And our employee satisfaction survey results have always consistently been an average score across every question of kind of eight and a half, between kind of eight and a half and nine and a half, mm-hmm. which is really, really high. And I do think that kind of having that mission obsession is, is the foundation of that. With regards to the values, I have worked at organizations that have had 10 page documents describing their values <laughs> that no one can remember. <laughs> and I have seen more mugs and posters on the walls than you can count. And what I have realized is that for values to be effective, just at a very basic level, they have to be memorable. If no one can remember them, then people aren't going to use them. So that's why we've got just four of them. And what I also really like about our values is there's a nice bit of kind of healthy tension within our values. So kind Mm -hmm. of inclusive and resourceful. have got a bit of healthy tension going on there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And similarly with ambitious and caring. Mm -hmm. Um, so yes, very, very intentional in terms of our leadership in, in, in that respect. And, and with our values, we recruit to them. We survey ourselves as to how well we think the organization is living up to our values. Everybody's 360 reviews also kind of rate their performance against the values. And when we're trying to take difficult decisions, whether it be about how we treat someone perhaps who's going through a health challenge to how we think about customer support within the organization or, or particular product feature, we absolutely do look to our values for guidance. Love it. I mean, and it's these times when culture really shines and shows. It's, it's super powerful. And can you elaborate a bit on the tension? I think you're you're kind of touching up on a really powerful yeah. point because values at surface level always sound fantastic, but then you get under the skin of it and there is tension and it's just fascinating, mm. I think, for people to hear. Yeah, well, so if, if you take... Well, I've mentioned kind of two tensions that might be kind of quite the, quite top of mind. So inclusive, you know, that is our number one company value. We want to build a product that is being used by a billion people to consume by mm-hmm. 2030. So if we want to build a product for a billion people, it has to be built by a team of people who are as close to representing that billion people as possible. So inclusive is really, really critical to us. And we've got an incredibly diverse team. But then the tension there is is kind of resourceful and, and how we define resourceful is basically not wasting kind of you know time or money being time is our most precious asset etc and also kind of showing the initiative to date we've never found it difficult or confusing to figure out sort of what what the right answer is and then similarly with ambitious and caring i think a lot of people find those values perhaps in juxtaposition to one another mm-hmm. they think well you know if you create a caring culture or workforce, then then surely you can't be a group of ambitious people. Or if you're a group of ambitious people, surely it's all going to be sort of sharp <laughs> elbows in a really unpleasant <laughs> environment. And, and we just think that's just such an outdated way of thinking. And, and, you know, perhaps it is that slightly more kind of feminine leadership style. I don't know what it is, but... No, we have the same. One of our three values is care. I totally yeah. get it. I think it makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah, it is really, really important. And... We think, you know, one of the kind of sub points about caring, you know, it, it's sort of we take care of, you know, we're caring in our thoughts, deeds and actions. And then we have sub bullet points about taking care of ourselves and each other and the planet. And in particular, that bullet point about taking care of ourselves is 
so powerful and so important. It does actually kind of feed into the ambitious piece and mm-hmm. it's an enabler, right? So it's, it, they, they sort of reinforce and they have conflicts between those values. And, and I think that's fine. It was super fascinating. Thank you for sharing. And you mentioned you spent 15 years in a corporate career. What's the stuff you had to unlearn? <laughs> so much. I, <laughs> one of the most joyous things about setting up your own business is you can just chuck out all the crap that made no sense whatsoever from your previous <laughs> lives. But so Sasha and I often say there's about you know half the stuff that we, for our corporate career, we gaily tossed away. Um, and half of it we thought was really, really valuable. And we have embedded into Olio. Several things that we have had to unlearn. When you work for a large corporate, and in particular, so, you know, I, I had fairly senior um, positions, I was a divisional managing director. The expectation was, was that you were sort of master of your domain and you had very, very deep expertise and you sort of knew the answer to everything. And also that sort of when you said you would deliver X, Y, or Z over this time frame, then that is what would happen. And that mindset is actually the least helpful, most dangerous mindset to have for an early stage entrepreneur. Mm. For an early stage entrepreneur, you need to embrace the fact and get comfortable with the fact that sort of you know nothing. Mm-hmm. And you also need to get comfortable with the fact that to sort of step out a precise plan of everything that you're going to do to unlock your ambitions is just a really dangerous thing to do. Instead, the mindset has to be that sort of real lean startup, test, measure, learn, iterate super quickly, adjust and adapt to new data and new information. And that definitely took a little while mm-hmm. uh, sort of in the first year of founding Olio to get my head around and to feel comfortable saying, I don't know. Or <laughs> well, yes, I am aware that three weeks ago we were planning to do X, Y, and Z, but now we've had new data and information and we're responding to that. And so we're doing something differently. I love that point. Thank you. Um, and how do you how do you still learn yourself? Uh, I am an obsessive learner, as is Sasha. Uh, I'm just insanely curious. I started out my career as a as a strategy consultant, and I I do think that, that sort of curiosity has been very very much uh, inbuilt from a very early age. I learn today, one, from every single interaction I have with everybody, but two, podcasts are really my go-to. Well, I try and get I get outside and exercise every single day, and I do that whilst listening to podcasts. So for me, it's a real sort of triple win. It's like great for my physical health, great for my mental health, and also I'm learning at the same time. And then on the weekends when I sort of batch cook all the meals for my family for during the week to enable us to kind of live up to our values of trying to be kind of zero waste and and uh, organic and sustainable and stuff. I multitask and, and listen to podcasts as well. So I listen to everything about startups and tech and uh, behavioral psychology and social psychology and all those sorts of things, because earlier is at that intersection of technology, but also trying to drive behavior change at scale. Love, love these points. Very similar. Exercising every day, listening to podcasts is fun. And and if you think about the again the growth, nine people, sixty people, hundred twenty. You know, yeah. at some point soon, you won't recognize everyone anymore, and you won't know, I know all it's the names. Terrifying. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it must be. Um, I remember those days. It's, it's been scary. And but what is it that only Tessa can do today, and how will that kind of evolve? And you know, how how are you kind of intentional around delegation and giving up stuff to then focus on yeah. what only you can do? So uh, I often think via analogy, 
And right now, Olio is undergoing an enormous metamorphosis. And the analogy, the another analogy that I use is, I feel like we are like a child that is leaving primary school and about to go to secondary school. And so as a founder, I feel Love it. in many ways, the same way that I know I will feel as a parent, my kids aren't quite going to secondary school yet, but it is around the corner. So I feel this incredible, intense nostalgia for sort of those early days, but equally, I don't want my startup to remain trapped in those early days. And I don't want my kids to remain trapped in those early days. So, you know, so I'm sad that they're not going to, you know, do drawings for me at school anymore, but equally I'm super excited for the stage that comes next. But in the same way that a child kind of going to secondary school is should by no means be considered completely independent, the same is the case for Olio as an organization. So Sasha and I are very, very involved and very, very embedded in the organization. Still, we work hard to be very present. So a couple of things we do, you know, we do still interview, um, do final interview for absolutely everybody who joins the company. We think that's such a powerful thing to do. Um, we've recently set up something called Founder 15. So we block out a couple of hours in our diaries every Friday and absolutely anybody in the organization can book some time with us. And that has been really, really well received and uh, has been super enjoyable for us as well. And then okay. we have a weekly sort of team all hands meeting where often Sasha and I are presenting things and sharing things and giving our take on things. So we're still very present in the organization, but we are now increasingly managing through our senior leadership team. And it's really important that we give them the space to flourish and, and, and sort of do what they can do best because they've got the very deep domain expertise that we don't have in their respective domains. And how are you thinking about creating psychological safety for a team? I got, I don't know, like a team charter, green and red card behaviors, you know, like how do you turn a group of great people? You mentioned eight people on the, on the senior leadership team. How do you turn them into a team that's highly effective together? I mean, I hate to come back to it, but it really does start at the beginning and the kind of who you open the gates to and, and who you let in. So honestly, I struggle to think of any occasion in the past six or seven years where I've where I've ever really experienced any kind of red card behavior from anyone within our organization. Uh, and similarly, the eight members of our SLT that we have just hired, they've all arrived sort of together at the same time, which could be seen as a bit of a sort of high-risk strategy approach, but we are so rigorous in our recruiting and recruiting against the mission obsession and the values. And they are just a wonderful group of people who have just instinctively have just gelled together incredibly well. We are about to undergo a process of, uh, you will laugh, migrating off of WhatsApp. Uh, that's part of our resourceful uh, company value. Uh, onto <laughs> Slack. Uh, and so that will absolutely precipitate a number of conversations about our new sort of norms and ways of working and, and mm. stuff like that. But we will have sensible conversations, elicit feedback from the team and keep moving forward. And I think the most important thing with all of this is to constantly remind people the importance of having that that learning mindset, that growth mindset, and that mm. experimental mindset, right? Totally. Like we are Low way ego. too young to be sort of settling down into stasis. So everything is 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 up for improvement and debate, and we'll try something, see if it works, and if it doesn't, we'll try something else. 
And so you raised $43 million. And can you just dimensionalize again, nine people, 60 people, 120 people, and then the catalyst of raising 43 million. Like if you dimensionalize the change that's happening in the organization, you touched up on a couple of dimensions, process, org design, structure, SLT. But talk talk to me about like corporate governance, the board, having shareholders who have a say. How are you feeling about that side? <laughs> There's about 20 questions in that. I'll, I'll try, and, <laughs> Sorry. Try, try and pick through it. I mean, uh, definitely I split Olio's life really into two phases and we are just entering that second phase now. So the reality is that for us, and I think because both Sasha and I had had quite a lot of previous work experience, actually the kind of the process of scaling from the two of us to sort of the 60 odd people that we are today has been relatively seamless now is is the real sort of transformation, the metamorphosis that I have touched on. In terms of the corporate governance piece, we resisted having a board until after our Series A. And we had investors at previous rounds who were trying to insist that we form a board, but both Sasha and I knew that that was just far too early. We, we need to be testing and iterating and learning and experimenting and moving really, really quickly. And we knew that a, having a board would just sort of cement us down and that that was not the right thing. And the most effective way of working with our investors was working with them one-on-one. So sucking out their respective kind of area of expertise according to the particular challenge that we had. At the point of raising our series A, we felt that that was now sort of the right time um, to form a board and as did uh, Oxford Ventures who led our series A. And so we were excited at that point in time to form a board and we have kept it deliberately very small. So it's myself, Sasha, two investors. And then I was very, very clear that I wanted a non-exec director, not just sort of entrepreneurs plus investors on the board because I've Great seen lots of, I've seen lots of uh, board dynamics previously, and I think that external perspective is is very important. In particular, someone who has operational expertise, who has been through the entrepreneurial scaling experience. So we have Fred Mazella, who is founder of Blah Blah Car. He is our non-exec, and we have been very clear that we want to keep our board small and high performing. So it meets quarterly we've got some very clear kind of rules of the road that we've all signed up to and we assess our performance as a board and in particular i was keen to avoid sort of collecting board members like you collect cards which again i've seen can be quite easy through multiple rounds of investment so at each raise we've had quite an active discussion about who should or shouldn't be on our board and kind of swapping board members out mm-hmm. rather than just growing the number of Uh, board members, because I have seen that when you have these very large boards, it can lead to just a massive lack of accountability. Completely. Completely. And also, I mean, let's be honest, if you have one investor, the second investor adds 10% more than the next Mm -hmm. investor director adds 5%. And they're all amazing individuals, but it is a perspective they bring to the table. And it tends to be fairly groupthink um, after two. Yeah. I think that's super clever to focus on it. We had a lot of investor directors on our board. 
they've all stepped off the board. We're moving to a very independent board, you know, proper NEDs, uh, industry leaders, and it's really inspirational. And the challenge yeah. is fantastic. And the discussion is kind of elevated to strategy, um, yes. which I enjoy a lot more because we have an amazing team of soon 3000 people who can wow. look at the numbers and, you know, put, put a lot of emphasis on that. And Tessa, everything you say sounds incredible and very shiny and, and amazing. I worry that listeners might think you are an absolute superhero. Can you share like some, some setbacks, please? You know, some challenges, some sleepless nights, because starting a business is hard. And so I think it's important to hear both sides. Yeah. So I am most definitely not a superhero of any, any description. I think what I am, though, is someone who has a burning passion for our mission and an incredible level of resolve. And I do think that's really important for any startup founder because it is extremely challenging emotionally. It's absolutely exhausting. The roller coaster is real. So that definitely kind of helps get me uh, through the darkness. I think the most, not I think, I know the most challenging thing for me has been fundraising. We are a female founded business and mm. the data sadly speaks for itself. 1% of all venture capital investment goes to female founded businesses. 1%? 1%. Wow. 89% goes to male founded businesses and 10% goes to mixed teams. And there are a number of reasons for that, but um, all I will say, because this could be a whole other podcast, is that fundraising as a female founder is indescribably difficult and soul-destroying. And then when you layer on top of that, the fact that we're kind of a female-founded, tech for good, uh, we've always been a remote-first business, and also we were strategically and deliberately sort of slow to monetize. So that meant for much of our fundraising, we've been kind of pre-revenues. That has made it, especially challenging. So I have had more sleepless nights and tears of mm. frustration and anger and fear than, than I care to count. Thank you for sharing this openly. It's really appreciated. Yeah, um, I think I, I often, I kind of say I've got, a, in, instead of PTSD, I've got PFSD, you know, post-fundraising uh, <laughs> stress disorder. Um, it, it is, yeah, it, it's been very difficult. No, I can only imagine. And did you find it harder between series A and B? I.e., like, I mean, you know, does it get easier at some point? Yes. I believe that there is a glimmer of hope. I do think it is going to get easier because the reality is that in the early days, investors are investing in people. Mm-hmm. And for a whole variety of reasons, predominantly male investors are not investing in uh, female founders. As Olio becomes much more about the business and less about myself and Sasha as you know, kind of female co-founders, then I do believe that fundraising will become easier. Also, we were arguably early to market and we could very clearly see where the world was going, where it had to go, where it would go in terms of those macro trends towards local living and sustainability, but we were early. However, sort of in a post-COVID world now, there's been a step change in terms of how people are thinking about both of those things, including investors. And and thankfully, it seems like the world is finally waking up to the fact that 
we have a climate crisis. It is emergency. We need to mobilise. And I, I've seen such such a change in terms of the volume and also the quality of investor conversations. Like there's a lot of money now moving into this space, and, and quite rightly so. Yes, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, and I, I'm I'm excited for you to hear that trend should get bigger and bigger and bigger every single yeah. year. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the one thing that we noticed is that in the early days. Yes, it was really difficult, but at least there are thousands of VCs. I mean, there's so many. So as long as you can live with the rejection on a daily basis, it's a numbers game and you can find the right investor. And then now, you know, we just raised money from SoftBank, Fidelity, WeChief, the Rail, Railway Pension Fund, you know, like amazing names and, and deep pockets. And it's very process-led, very structured. And to be honest, yeah. it feels a lot easier than in the early days. But I think the hardest piece for us was kind of in the middle, crossing the desert. There's yeah. not a lot of funding focused on, you know, growth capital uh, in the early days. Um, all the private equity funds are kind of claiming that they do growth rounds. But to be honest, we were very, very, very kind of focused on purpose and values. And so yeah. didn't want to go get into bed with with anyone, um, if I may say. But um, that that's has, has been really difficult. And luckily now it's a lot easier again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that, that should also hopefully help is the VC industry becoming more diverse because sure. not only kind of as a, as, a, as a female founder, but founders of, of different ethnicities find fundraising very challenging. And what I found very frustrating is when I look at and see who are the founders that are doing some of the most important work, solving the biggest problems facing humanity today, they've actually been disproportionately female and of different ethnicities. And so the lack of funding going into them has really resulted in us sort of shortchanging humanity without wanting to put too fine a point mm. on it. But as we start to see more diversity come amongst the gatekeepers of capital, mm. um, then we start to see more diverse founders getting funding and these really big problems being solved. So I, I am hopeful that, that change is underway. It's just a bit too slow. So no doubt um, you'll be hugely successful and you're very passionate about this point. Will you at some point do angel investments and will become a VC once you have achieved the 2030 ambition of 1 billion people yeah. on the platform? That, uh, that, that is all that Sasha and I are focused on right now is a billion people <laughs> consuming via Rodeo by 2030. Um, I do spend a lot of my time already. I think the way I can add most value to the ecosystem, in particular focused on diverse founders and founders solving real problems, is through giving out my time. So I will sort of give half an hour to any founder that sort of fits that, that criteria to help accelerate the performance of their business. And I think I can be far more effective doing mm -hmm. that than through angel investing. I just haven't got the bandwidth to get my head around that, quite frankly. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of capital out there. I think it's a powerful point. And just, just in a nutshell, who is Tessa? Where, where did you grow up? I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere in North Yorkshire. So in the Northeast of the UK, alongside my two younger brothers. It's a sort of family business. My parents are still farming there. My wow middle brother has is sort of in the process of taking over the farm so i had a very rural very isolated and very non-material and very frugal upbringing and, and i always kind of i guess it made me a little weird as a child because i didn't watch tv and i didn't go to the movies and i 
you know, didn't consume music and all that kind of stuff. And I'd never been to the shops and all that jazz. And when it came to sort of applying for jobs, I was like, oh, how on earth can I apply for a job? You know, I've got no work experience because it didn't occur to me that actually my experiences sort of on the farm mm. could be could be valuable. I now look back and actually I, I think there was so many learnings that I developed through my childhood around problem solving and resilience and, you know, leadership of my workforce of two, my two younger brothers, distinctly <laughs> not happy <laughs> to be put to work. So, yeah. It. Yeah. And, and that was also where I got my appreciation for food, right? The value of food, because when you are spending every waking moment outside working, come mm. hail, snow, wind, rain, whatever, you then would not dream of throwing away food. And that really was kind of the inspiration for Olio. It was my intense dislike of food waste, which led me to founding the business. Amazing. And just from a values perspective, like what would you say are your values today and how do they link back to your parents, to your upbringing? Mm -hmm. Well, the words waste not, want not were definitely sort of ringing in my ears uh, as a child. The value of hard work was something I certainly saw role modeled. I mean, arguably far too much. You know, my dad gets up at three o'clock in the morning and works through till 11 o'clock at night. So, yeah, I think that there's sort of the, the sort of dislike of waste, the value of nature and hard work. They were all uh, things. And also giving back. Mm -hmm. um, that's something my mum was, was always very, very keen to impress upon us the importance of, of, of giving back and, and making things better for future generations than, than they are for your own. What's the, what's the best podcast you've listened to recently? Anything you could share? Oh, well, I've, I've written a blog post actually about, um, <laughs> amazing about my favorite podcasts, but I listened to many of the sort of usual culprits in the startup world. I also listened to quite a few rounds sort of the climate crisis. So I love outrage and optimism, mm -hmm. which is just for me a perfect blend between those two emotions. And you learn an awful lot about the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, yeah, uh, behavioral psychology is the other sort of area. So there's one called Hidden Brain, um, which is an NPR one, which mm -hmm. I find really helpful as I'm constantly thinking about how we can use our products and our marketing communications to drive behavior change at scale. And then this morning I was listening to Pivot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's that's a great one as well. It's a really good one. And, and any book you can recommend? I'm, I'm looking at a shelf of books that I, that I need to read, but yes, <laughs> it, it depends. So for anyone who's at the start of their entrepreneurial journey, the two sort of mandatory books uh, from my perspective are The Lean Startup by Eric Rees mm. and then also The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick, which is all about how to do market research properly. If you're kind of trying to figure out the climate crisis and what role you can play, I cannot recommend highly enough uh, Naomi Klein's book mm -hmm. called This Changes Everything. I can't remember if it's you know, capitalism versus the climate or the other way around, but Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything. And then also another favorite is a book by a guy called Jason Hickel called Less Is More. And that is absolutely fascinating sort of challenge to our current model of capitalism and yeah really really powerful read amazing thank you what what do you do for fun 
I mean, you're clearly very intensely focused around the purpose, the passion, you know, scaling the business. There's so much going on. You're right in the middle of it. And then you're a learnaholic. What do you do for fun? Well, gosh, I sort of, <laughs> that's a slightly sort of tricky one to answer because I've got two sort of young children and a very demanding husband as well. So by the time I, <laughs> you know, kind of uh, made, made them happy and sort of just nonstop thinking about Olio, working on Olio, you know, as I say, kind of my exercise is super important to me. That's non-negotiable. I have to do it every single day. We are about to go on holiday, actually about to go skiing. So I'm a snowboarder. Uh, we're catching the train the whole way there. So no flights. Wow. Involved. So living the value. That's amazing. I love that. Flying yeah, no. is, wow. Flying is really bad. Yeah, no. That's, flying that's is awesome. so bad. So I, I just can't in clean conscience do it um, unless it's really unavoidable. So yeah, we're catching the train and going to have a week snowboarding in the sunshine in the mountains and it is definitely much needed i'm happy for you that sounds amazing um well it's been super fun tessa thank you so much i love the purpose i love what you're trying to achieve i love the think big the big ambition you have the clarity you have around purpose um, and people and culture and talent it's been really really fun thank you thank you thank you for having me on and um, i look forward to talking to you about how olio and gusto can work together <laughs> <laughs>